Welcome to the Mike on Much Podcast. We are here with our friend and trusted producer, Max Kerman. We also have our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. And joining us a little later in the show is our featured guest, the author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, Amanda Ripley. Uh, this is a book that Max has been all over. He actually talked about it on a previous pod. So we reached out and got her on the, on the pod to talk about her book. Uh, we'll get to her in a bit, right, Maxie? We'll, we'll set that all up a little later. Yeah, not to tease it too much, but she is a cover uh, story writer for Time Magazine, The Atlantic. Uh, she's interviewed Barack Obama. So this is like a, a real smart person on our show. Don't ruin I'm the interview, Max. Let's wait and listen. <laughs> um, okay, lots going on in the news. Uh, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates are uh, getting a divorce. Speaking of conflict, but this seemed like a pretty uh, amicable split, all things considered. What made it seem that way? <laughs> well, their, their statement was pretty nice. Oh, come know. on. What are you going to say? <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, a couple things that came out of this uh, that I thought was fascinating was I saw somebody tweet about how there's certain celebrities that like you'll read something about them and it just sticks with you. And every time you mm-hmm. see that celeb or hear about that celeb, you think about this piece of information. So this person on Twitter uh, had said she couldn't, she read like a feature on Bill Gates years ago uh, that basically 97 said, or something like that. It's yeah. It was like a, a 97 feature in time magazine. Yeah. Well, after I read this tweet, I go, how did I not know this piece of information? So I wanted to like fact check it. Cause I'm like, I don't want to go on the podcast and be t- t- telling Bill Gates business if it's not even true. But, and literally two hours ago in Newsweek, They've actually also picked up this story from this old feature on Bill Gates. Uh, Headline in Newsweek, Melinda Gates approved Bill's unusual arrangement with his ex-girlfriend, Anne Winbald. And so basically, Bill Gates dated Anne Winbald, a software entrepreneur uh, and venture capitalist, before he married Melinda in 94. But before they actually got married, uh, Gates sort of had this arrangement with his wife that he could continue to see Winbald for an <laughs> annual weekend getaway. Was he bloated at this point, by the way, when, he, when they got married? Was he like a billionaire already? I, yeah, I think Microsoft so he, was cooking. Okay, he had that like power in the dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think if he was just like a guy in his garage developing software, he's like, well, here's the deal. I would like to continue seeing my ex-girlfriend if that's okay. You don't, ha- you don't have the balls to ask that unless you've already made your first couple million. Yeah. What do you guys think of this, uh, this story? Did it surprise you? It did surprise me. Yeah, because Bill Gates seems like such a nerd. And so <laughs> the fact that, nerds, you know, nerds he, have, uh, you know, carnal and, uh, needs and past they, loves and all, come on, do, they, nerds might need no, it yeah. even more though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did surprise me. And also they seem to have such like a functional, like he seems so normal. And, and so I think, you know, when you hear about certain couples that have like interesting arrangements or whatever, I just don't think of Bill and Melinda Gates in that category. So that's why, why it surprised me. Shane, what about you? I don't know. I find like the, um, the look he has a lot of guys who are sexually whatever uh, have that look with those big glasses. <laughs> you know, I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, like the ones that used to wear almost. Shane. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you saw the way I was grooving at those clubs wearing when I wore those sunglasses. It was very sexual in nature. You were putting out the vibe. Well, it was really. And Matt Unsworth, a former pod guest, commented on this in the comment section on the Instagram saying I was very Austin Powers-esque, oh, which if you true. really look at me, yeah, I, yeah. I looked a lot like him at the time, who was very sexual. Oh. But yeah, Bill Gates, I wouldn't say he's a normal guy. <laughs> Austin Powers, <laughs> as if he's like a real historical figure. He was very sexual, Austin Powers. Well, yeah. Women loved him. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think Bill Gates is a normal guy, so it wouldn't surprise me for him to have a, an arrangement like this. Because he probably didn't have a lot of girlfriends growing up, so that one ex, it was probably before he had his money, 
Now, then he had his money and he's like, ooh, I bet you I can, you know, get her back somehow and I'll spend the rest of my life trying to do so. <laughs> and maybe he did. You- maybe that's why, why the, the divorce is happening. Maybe he finally had one magical weekend with her at the cabin <laughs> this was the weekend that did it 25 yeah, they, years like, later maybe they might she never agreed to it until this year and then they <laughs> yeah. finally got it you're <laughs> yeah, finally rich like, enough bill yeah it's like, i know it's in your wedding clause from 25 <laughs> years ago so i'm gonna give you give you a go this year and then they broke up <laughs> yeah well i was wondering like when people this wealthy who are this intertwined like melinda and bill you know like their businesses their philanthropy like everything about their their life and their partnership feels so intertwined and they're sort of at an age where you just imagine you'd kind of continue to continue on that way. And then if you want to sort of do things on the side or whatever, get your fixes, you kind of just, you, you, you take care of that when you, when you have that kind of money. I imagine that the reason that they came apart must truly be, be that one of, one of them fell in love because otherwise you just kind of keep it together. Don't you, when you're that rich and wealthy and recognized and sort of a power couple, do you think one of them is like, no, I actually want to spend my life with somebody else. Or do you think they're just separating? Cause they're like, you know what? It's run its course. You do you, I'll do me. It's, it has to be cabin girlfriend. It has to be. <laughs> cabin girlfriend. Cabin girlfriend is the name of this episode for sure. No, but you don't write a clause that you have to spend a one weekend for the rest of your life with your ex-girlfriend unless you have you love her, right? You wouldn't do that otherwise. I Yeah. I mean, it's, it, is it romantic or is it creepy? It's weird. It's strange. Like, would Danica allow that, you think, Mike? Fuck no. Come on. (laughs) I I was going to ask you guys this because you guys are both married men. I won't Mm -hmm. ask you about who would be your cabin girlfriend because we don't need to talk about that because there there wouldn't be one even in that category. Check the Zoom chat. I've already answered it. I'm kidding. Max, check. I'm kidding. I'm not doing that. (laughs) Okay, but but what would be like the funny clause you'd you'd put in a prenup is my question. Is this like, Danica, I get to go to, you know, 23 Raptors games a year or something like, is it something stupid that you just want to be like, this is just important important to me. No, here's the question. Here's the question. Let's say our wives came to us and wanted to put in the clause mm. that they get their cabin boyfriend for oh, one that's weekend a, better a year. Question. Do we still stick with our wives? Shane, do you still get married if Alex puts that <laughs> Shane in the could clause? not handle that. Shane definitely He's already fuming. Not. Well, no, so no. Angry it, right now. It, it, it depends. Do does she does she get to fool around with them? And what is it? Is it if so, is it just over the pants? Like <laughs> <laughs> just heavy petting at the yeah. cabin and like maybe uh, like uh, it's just above waist i don't i don't know like some pecking no tongue i don't know the the rules <laughs> but sometimes as we know it is fun like when if our wives are going out on the town it is kind of fun to have that weekend alone to watch a movie and relax and do whatever you want by yourself. It, it, can, it can be so good. you wouldn't just be seething at home, just thinking about what might be going on if she had a cabin boyfriend? I don't know. I liked I like to trust Alex because once you when she had the children, and I feel like she wouldn't want to do anything to disrupt that. So it, it, once children are involved, I feel like there's an added layer of trust because it's like, oh, like there's skin in the game, you know? So I do what trust if she her said more. no questions asked cabin weekend, you know, one weekend a year. That's part of the deal. But no okay, questions I can, asked. I can't ask any questions, but can I put no if I find out or see on Instagram that there's anything <laughs> under the pants going on or any tongue being <laughs> kissed. On Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Who would put that on Instagram? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, if you, if, you, if they're drinking a lot, they might. But it, I, oh, it was yeah, just true, like, true. it would be alive. like a don't yeah. ask, don't tell. It's like, okay, I don't want to hear about it. I'm not going to ask about it, but don't 
shove it in my face and I don't want any of your friends telling me what's going on. Then I might consider it if she had a really good case somehow. <laughs> so carnal desires? Uh, no, no. The carnal she, desires clause? She can't. She can't. <laughs> Touch him, like bare skin or anything. Only heavy petting. Uh, Mike, what if Danica had a, a no questions asked uh, cabin oh. boyfriend? In a real life practical conversation, <laughs> application, like I just try to imagine what the conversation would be like. <laughs> well, Bill Gates clearly did this conversation. Right? I know. That's what's so brash about it. Like, it's like, it's it, a, a, a question like that leads to so many more questions. It, like, do I get a weekend? Uh, and uh, are we in an open thing now? What's the point of this? What does monogamy even mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, l- love is complicated and layered. You know, it, it almost like spins you out into an existential thing more so than just the maybe a physical act or the heavy petting that shane's describing it's like do you, do you are you still thinking about this person like in a regular capacity like i am i competing with someone from the past you know like i think for me it's a more emotional question more than just a contract or you know physical thing you know what i'm saying yeah no so i probably have to shut it down even if i get a, like a weekend pass like it's like mm-hmm. it's like well what what am i gonna do with my weekend pass because it's like yeah it's like nuclear proliferation 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 <laughs> just use words word you know is. max and you've used before and like that have similar meaning <laughs> yeah don't go chasing water you know, it's basically an arms race you know it's like well if you did this then i'm gonna do this and then yes, you get this it and escalates. this yeah it just escalates and then you're in the cuban missile crisis and the truth is like so on its face it's like okay like something physical with somebody else you know that's kind of interesting or new or whatever but really and this isn't even me like trying to elicit like a ah. the only person to want to be in a cabin with is danica you know what i mean thanks a lot (laughs) that's insulting right yeah but i mean the physicality it's like whatever we're all human we all see you know people walking by you what did you call it max the carnal desires clause you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's like i I can relate to that i'm more i'd be more concerned about the like bill do you still hold a flame uh Mm -hmm. for this past engineer that you were dating that's more troubling to me Mm -hmm. if i'm melinda i want to clarify something here too before everyone's like oh shane's such a (laughs) freaky weirdo oh i can't believe he would just give up alex like that this is we're doing on like exact equivalency, right? Where Alex has all this money dangling over my head. She's the billionaire and she's proposing this. And I'm like, well, if you really want to and the case is good enough, just like don't don't go under the pants. Like then that like if I was really like enjoying my lifestyle as this billionaire's husband, that's the mm. if, if it was now, it would be like, no. Like, and, that, and that, that's what I was saying with the with the kids being the leverage too. Like if if she was really going to cheat on me and the kids, I would have so much power in court. Okay, now it's getting dark. Um, like so, if money was involved, though, Mike, like same same thing. You just great same. point. Oh, great point. Like all things being equal, mm-hmm. if like Danica is a multimillionaire that you know created an ubiquitous technology that everybody mm-hmm. uses. Uh, then she has all the leverage uh, and she's like, the only condition of marrying me is uh, that you allow me to have this clause. I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm a pretty prideful person. Like, I feel like I'd be like, I don't care about your money. Like if we're either doing this or we're not doing this, Mm. that's easy to say though, when I'm not staring at a billion dollars and a different life and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, all right, so, wow. I feel like this was like, uh, we came out of the gates uh, going for it. Uh, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates. I hope everybody's happy. <laughs> we came out of the gates going for it. Bill Gates, Melinda Gates. That's good. We have talked about all the time where there's in- unintentional puns. And and yeah, I find more often than not, I'm actually entering the unintentional pun. Yeah, and I too. don't know if it's like brain soup where it's just uh, my brain's actually doing it, connecting things that it's not meaning to. But there you have it. Guys, 
Elon Musk is going to host SNL uh, this coming. Is it this weekend coming up? I'm not yes, sure. Yes, it is. Yeah, May 7th. One, uh, this is obviously a very unconventional uh, host choice. Uh, Elon is a little bit polarizing uh, just as a sort of a public figure. Um and yeah, and 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 two, I mean, the reason you do this is if you're SNL is because you'll probably get your highest ratings in quite a long time. Will you guys be watching and what do you think of the choice of Elon Musk? I think it's a funny choice. I think people who aren't funny are really funny to watch in comedic skits and someone like him who's so different. It's almost like a Bill Gates, probably even funnier. So I, I find the sweet spot for SNL is to get somebody who's universally considered to be hilarious, like a Kristen Wiig or a Will Ferrell, have them return. That's always a great hit or the exact opposite of that. And then like ah. if, if Paris Hilton comes on, it's like, you know, this is going to be funny for either intentional or unintentional reasons, depending how they use her. And so you're saying, Shane, that the middle tier is not as good. So it's like just like a good actor or like a, an athlete or something like that. Uh, is, isn't usually going to be that successful. Well, it's just not a guarantee. Whereas Elon Musk or Will Ferrell on total opposite ends of the spectrum are guaranteed to be a hit because you're going to, there's going to be something to talk about. Whereas someone more middling, they could be great or they could not be. Whereas, you know, there's going to be something awesome to talk about with Elon. Are you going to be watching Max? Yeah, I know. I'm absolutely going to watch. I'm very excited. But the thing that, um, this is shows how narcissistic I am. I am just thinking about what would happen if I hosted it. And that's all I could think about. Was it going Oh my God, it? that is an interesting thought. Yeah, it's like, who would be the oh, best? I would love it. How would Max do on SNL? How would I do? How would you, you guys would do? You would do good. You would do good, Max. Yeah, I think you would. I think you'd be uh, good. Why? Why? Uh, what would my opening monologue be? Would it be a musical number or would it be, you know, you know, doing some crowd work, you know, when they have the plant in the crowd? What would I do? Oh, good question. You guys are my writers. You would, they would for sure give you the plant in the crowd. Mm. The bit would be, I, I can actually <laughs> see it in my mind. You'd be like, okay, many, you might not know me, but I'm pretty big deal in Canada. And then they'd have some <laughs> Canadian fans in the crowd. Like who are really over the top oh. Canadian who keep interrupting. Yeah, you'd have like two <laughs> cast members play the Canadians in exactly. the crowd. And they would just be uh, over the top and you'd be interacting and whatever, you know. You know, I, I might launch into a song, but then I'd get interrupted by the Canadians in the crowd. I'd be ah. like, so let me tell you how I got to New York City. <laughs> and then somebody like, yeah, Max, are you from Hamilton? And then somebody in the crowd, I'd be like, ah, oh, fuck off, you know? <laughs> and then, yeah, it'd be an extension of that. How do you think Max would do in sketches, uh, Shane? I think he, I think you're you're good in that kind of, it's it's funny to see you act foolish. And it's almost like an Elon-y vibe. <laughs> <laughs> and you're way more with it, you know, comedically, but it's hard to describe. You have that quality without being not with it, where it is funny to see you acting goofy. Like, I guess it's like a a casual dignity you have or something that it's funny to see you looking foolish. <laughs> okay. I like that. What about you guys? Um, Shane, how do you think you'd perform on SNL? Whew, it would all depend on my comfort level. I think the older I get, the more comfortable I would be to do it. But younger, I feel like I would just crack under the the total pressure. You'd be so stressed out. Oh my god! Yeah, you preparing for it, but you'd yeah. come through. I think mm -hmm. you'd start off really shaky off the top, and you'd be like, "Why is this guy?" The monologue the would be the terrible thing for me. Yeah, but mm -hmm. I think even by the end of the monologue, you have because yeah. that that's your kind of brand of comedy. You don't come out swinging, but there's mm -hmm. always something that you know, and in, in the back half that really yeah. surprises people and shocks people and makes people laugh a lot. Yeah, I like I, hiding I, I, in a character too, because then it mm -hmm. feels like, oh, this isn't me. This is I have an excuse to be this ridiculous thing. Yeah, 
Uh, Mike, what about you? How do you think you do on SNL? I like my chances. Mm-hmm. I like my chances. I'd look I, like I look forward to the monologue. I feel like if the writing was strong, I like my. I, yeah, I, I'd feel very comfortable delivering a monologue uh, if I felt like the writing was strong and, you know, we worked on it and all that. I think I'm almost the opposite of Shane where I'd feel more comfortable in the monologue part and then I'd be a little more nervous about the sketches and the sort of performative nature of the sketches and like having to do character work or something like that. But um, it would be a, like an amazing challenge and sort of very exciting, and exhilarating thing. I was actually just reading because we were talking about leading up to the pod, different unconventional like host choices for SNL. And I was trying to think back on different hosts. And I mean, Trump is probably the the best comp for Elon recently, but in the past you've had like Michael Jordan host, uh, LeBron James and Wayne Gretzky actually hosted. And there's an oral history uh, that I was just reading in Forbes about the time that Wayne Gretzky hosted in like 1989 and like how excited Mike Myers was. And they got like Dana Carvey, all these people in it. And they Wayne, the way that Wayne hosted it, is that his agent said, hey, Lauren wants you to host. He'd just been traded to the uh, the Lakers, the LA Kings. Uh, he was like this superstar. And Lauren, obviously they're both Canadians, reached out and was like, you know, you want to do it? So his agent asked. And Wayne was like, no. He's like, I'll, I'll embarrass myself. It's, I, I wouldn't do it. And then I guess he's on a plane, some private jet uh, with his wife, and he opens up the newspaper and the headline says, Wayne Gretzky is hosting Saturday Night Live. Oh. <laughs> and he goes, oh my God. And he puts the paper down and he looks at his wife and he goes, did, did you call, did you do this? Did you call? And she's like, I did. She's like, and you're going to thank me. She's like, you're going to thank me years later that you actually did this. Wow. Yeah. And then they go, they get into all the sketches and all this stuff and Wayne killed it. Like it was, it ended up being like one of the more memorable athlete appearances on the show, but it's a little bit of SNL and Canadian history for you. Oh, and Phil Hartman was on the show and Phil Hartman and Wayne are both from Brantford, Ontario. And I guess um, Phil said to Wayne, because of you, I'll always be the most second popular person, second most famous person from Brantford. Yeah, wow. that's good. That's very I didn't good. I know he was from Brantford. Who, Wayne or... Uh, oh, Phil. Phil Hartman. Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, so Elon Musk, everybody's going to be watching. Uh, Max, you like your chances of hosting SNL? I think you'd be very good at it. Shane, I think you'd also be very good at it. I like all three of our chances, but it would be so weird to watch a friend do it. It would be so nerve-wracking. Like, Max, mm. if you were on SNL um, and we oh. were watching from home, although I might call in like a friend card and be like, you need to like let me hang out that week. And you'd you help with the writing. You guys would be part of the writing oh. staff. Yeah, you got to bring in your own people. That That's would be right. the dream. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask Max, if you had to bet in your life right now, would you say one day you'll do SNL like as a band? Oh, so hard. I mean, I mean, probably not. Only because they have about three guitar bands on per year or something. You know what I mean? Just like, so... I don't know. Sam but, but Roberts did Letterman. Well, your doppelganger. He did. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but but if they invite us, we'll, we'll we'll show up for sure. Shane, if you had to bet money, would you say that Arkells play SNL at some point in their career? Okay, I have money. <laughs> okay, I I I think the odds. I w- I think the odds are more that you're not going to, but I think there's a really good chance you do. Yeah, oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that vote of confidence. That's yeah, cool. I say there's a 30% chance we see our Kells on SNL, which is huge. That's a huge percentage. <laughs> That's, That's a, a great percentage. You guys are nuts, but I'll, I'll take the late night show first. And well, then first you're going to do The Bachelor. That's going to be, <laughs> and then you're going to kind of get popular in the States because of that, and then you'll be on SNL. Mm, I see, I see, I see. Yeah. That's the road. All right, guys. Uh, you know, all this talk of uh, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, uh, divorcing um, is kind of like a, a, a natural segue to our conversation with Amanda Ripley, the author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. 
Um, cause there's a lot in that book about, uh, couples mediation, you know, uh, conflicts that are very small and personal and conflicts that extend out larger into the, the greater world. Um, Max, what, how did you come by this book and what is about it? Did you love? Well, she was a guest on the Slate Political Gab Fest, which is a weekly politics podcast that I've been listening to for about 10 years. And I was like, everything she said in that interview, I was like, oh, this is so interesting. So I immediately got the book. And it reads um, similar to kind of like a Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Michael Lewis, sort of these sort of broad pop culture um, academic books that are that like are very, very readable. I kind of, I blew through it's like, you know, it's 240 pages or something. And I, you know, it, it touches on a lot of points that we talk about in the podcast is like, how do we get people to get along? I remember a conversation we had a couple of pods ago about like, who would be the best person to speak to middle America? And I talked about maybe Joe Rogan would be good. Not that I listen to Joe Rogan, but like just these kind of conversations, but like, because it feels like there's often a lot of um, miscommunication that leads to mistrust in our world and she's trying to get to the bottom of that. And and she kind of talks about, yeah, exactly what you said, Mike. Uh, conflict and, you know, conflict entrepreneurs, people who thrive in in creating conflict and, and making everyone's life a lot worse off. And uh, the interview was really fun, eh, Mike? She, uh, she oh, was yeah. like a really a blast to talk to. Uh, Shane, it seems like you have something on the top of your, tip of your tongue. No, no, no. I was just, I, I, I don't want to ask it. No, no, no. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you got to. Our listeners are intrigued. No, no, no. I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Why? Ignore me. Just I can't. Say it. No, 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 no. Don't worry. Let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. <laughs> we can cut it out. No, 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 no. I don't. I, I don't want to. Nothing. Wow. Okay, we're leaving all that in though. Okay, uh, that'll be funny. Um, but uh, before we get to the interview, I wanted to ask you guys: Can you? Re- re- can you recall a time you were in high conflict with another person or another team you were playing against or a corporation? Does anything come to mind where you had like a feud with somebody that really took over your life? I got a couple of them. Uh, one, <laughs> yeah, one we can get into for the Shane surprise. I'll, I'll, I'll tease that. And the, the first one would be, I had a friend of mine who I went to for dating advice and one time I asked him, I was, I was dating a, a woman, a young woman, and I didn't know how to date really. I hadn't, I don't think I, maybe I had one girlfriend before, but I really didn't know how to date. And I couldn't tell a hundred percent if I liked her or not. And I, I went to him for advice. And then he said, oh no, like, I don't think she's right for you. Whatever. I go on a trip to Las Vegas, have a great time. I come back. The guy who told me not to date the woman is dating her. Oh. It was the ultimate betrayal. And I was like, Oh my hey, goodness. You said she wasn't right for me. And I was like, well, she's right for me, you know? <laughs> so, and, and that really, it, it fractured our relationship for like a couple of years. I, I think. Do I know the, the, the young lady? I know this one. I <laughs> yeah. remember this one specifically. No, I don't know if you know her. She kind of looked like, and I, I was really attracted. Oh to shoot. I thought this was uh Remember with the short hair? Oh, that was another betrayal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Can we believe these names? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just keep so, so that, <laughs> that was another one. Another so, betrayal. You've been betrayed so many times. Okay. okay. So More that, than anybody I know. So that betrayal. I had a cro- you left, right, center. 
<laughs> so that was one betrayal. Here's the other one. We'll get to my other betrayal in the Shane surprise, but um, <laughs> that's when I betrayed someone. But this Ooh. one is about me being betrayed. So what happened was I was we were going to go to Motown, which was a popular event in Hamilton. People lined up around the block. It was like our big social event for young people. And Wednesday were, nights. Wednesday nights. It was bumping. And there was a, wo- a young woman I liked. So I was excited to potentially see her at this Motown. So, By the way, at the time, you were a young man, too, just to be clear. It I was a young like- man. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking at her on Facebook at the time. I think that was the popular social media thing. I'm like, oh, look at her. She's, isn't she great? And the guy's like, she's okay. Anyway, cut to midnight. Us all boogieing kind of uh, inebriated on alcohol. And he's making out with her on the dance floor. My girl that I said I liked and he wasn't even into her. All of a sudden he's in love. Then they have this big uh, like two and a half month love affair. Mike, uh, do you have what is your greatest betrayal? I mean, conflict. Uh. <laughs> yeah, there's a big difference. Uh, no, yeah. A, a, a conflict that jumps to my mind uh, was the, it, it, what is known as the infamous this is how you discard a towel. Uh, mm. And so <laughs> this is the best. I was, uh, we were on tour, um, the band I was in, San Sebastian, and The Nut, who's a friend of us all, and uh, pod listeners may be familiar with him, he was tour managing like our band on this tour, doing this like junior hockey arena tour opening for other bands, like Lights was on the bill, some other bands were on the bill, and we, uh, it was cool, we were playing like arenas, um, but it was also pretty high stress. I think we had like nine of these like sort of dates across Canada, and like our, our album had just come out, we were with the big label and all that stuff. And it was probably like, I don't know, like six or seven sh- shows into the tour. There was going to be some important people at this at this show. And you've just been on the road for a long time with all these guys, the guys in the band uh, and the nut. And the nut, as we, as we know, he's got a big personality. Um, and so like he's supposed to be there, you know, kind of supporting the band tour. He's supposed to be managing us, but he's got a, he's, he's like probably the biggest star in our, in our group. He, he needed the one that probably needed the most managing. Um, and I, by the way, I was no cakewalk on that tour, but we're backstage. We're in like this hockey locker room and we're, we're going to go on in like 10 minutes. So we're doing like our pre-show thing. We're all getting ready. I've got like this like stage outfit. And, uh, you know, you don't got a ton cause you're on tour. So you kind of rotate the same thing, you know, like one or two things. And I go to sit down on the bench and I sit down and I look over and I immediately realize that I sat on a towel that had shaving cream all over the towel. So now shaving cream was all over like my black pants. And I went, who the fuck like left shaving cream like here, like who put this towel here? And the nut, instead of being like, you know what, <laughs> Mikey's stressed. He's about to go up on stage. Uh, he just went. I did calm down, <laughs> which in that moment made me so furious uh, that it was like, it was, I was, it was dismissed. And a big thing in, in Amanda's book, you know, it's not about the crock pot. She talks about these, uh, these sort of like these things, this, uh, a divorcing couple will fight over a crock pot or like a Lego set, but you realize it's not about that. It's about something deeper. So I, I became hyper-focused on this discarded towel. And I was like, you can't put shaving cream on a towel and then leave it where somebody's going to sit and he's like i didn't do it you know and he's going back and forth and i'm I'm, fuck 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 and so i'm so mad and he's like he's like i put the towel there and i was like you don't discard a towel there i go this is how you discard a towel and i like whipped it across like the room and then that (laughs) became like the sticky line for the rest of the it's followed me for a very long time you know this is how you discard a towel this is how Uh, you discard a towel in anger is one of the funniest lines you could ever say (laughs) 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 Well, and the best part of that story, the addendum, is that 
uh, at three in the morning, uh, the nut vanished into the night only to be found uh, at the airport in Toronto the next day. He flew home. He booked himself a flight. He, from, left, he left the tour. From yeah. Regina and just flew home uh, And unannounced. he never shaved again after that day. If you notice, he has a long beard now. <laughs> the beard's been growing since that tour. <laughs> Neither of us can look at shaving cream the same again. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a pretty, that was like, that, it felt intense in the moment, certainly. And the nut and I are probably more similar uh, than we are, you know, unalike and so our personalities on that tour for sure were there was a little bit of a, a friction but good friction now we you know we love each other yeah, it's been course. years what about you maxi boy um i'm usually the mediator i think in a lot of situations i'm pretty good i think i think i'm pretty good seeing it both sides but i do lose my cool in significant ways with customer service which is like you know most people but i remember recently i was trying to um I was trying to access uh, a streaming account like to watch TV shows and I couldn't get into the account. So I was like, and then I was trying to like a specialty channel that was attached to the streaming network. It was all very complicated. So I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I just want to delete this account. I don't even want to think about this. It's driving me crazy. This was like six months ago. So basically I called in and I said like, I'm trying to add this thing, but I'm, you're not allowing me to add it. So I'm just going to cancel the whole thing. And then the, they're like, well, you have to log in to cancel your account. I'm like, no, this is the problem. I can't even log in. They're like, yes, sir. If, if you want to cancel your account, you're going to have to log into your account to cancel it. I'm like, no, here's the thing. I can't get into the account. That's the problem in the first place. And then they're like, well, sir, you're just going to have to log in. I was like, no, I'm going to kill myself. And that's how I'll end. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and that's how I'll end this account. Okay. That's what's going to happen because it was, the, the logic made no, no sense because I was just like, I'm just going to cancel it. They're like, well, you, ha- you have to log in to cancel. I'm like, no, I can't log in. This is the problem. I try to reset my password. Nothing fucking works. I'm just trying to cancel. Oh, you, the only way you can do it is if you log in. I'm like, this is crazy. So, yeah, I usually just uh, put David Buss and my, my accountants, anything. And now I just have like, you call in. I just <laughs> yeah, back the last episode. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you know what you do in those situations, though? And I do this every once in a while. If I just have too many weird accounts and things I'm subscribed to, I just cancel mm. my credit card and start fresh. Mm, that's and then a good I'll idea. Just, that's a great yeah. idea. And then I'll just get an email saying like, oh, you're running out here. And I'll be like, don't need that. Fuck it. Fuck it. Fuck it. And then I just get the stuff I need. That's great. All right. Well, uh, guys, I think it is time to get to our conversation with Amanda Ripley, the author, like we said, of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. It was a super, super fascinating book that I think, um, you know, if you do read it, you can apply uh, a lot of, of what she writes about sort of maybe to your to your own interactions, especially if you feel yourself getting into a conflict, uh, you know, active listening, um, all sorts of sort of fascinating things and and like compelling stories all throughout. There's about four or five different like specific stories um, of sort of high conflict and what they, the, the, the effect it had on the people involved. So check out the book and enjoy this conversation with Amanda Ripley. Like Max was saying uh, when we were chatting sort of before we were recording, he's been singing your praises for weeks. He's telling everybody in message groups, you have to read this book, read this book. Um, and it's, it's been great. It's awesome. Uh, I've been going through it all week. I guess my first question would be, what was the impetus to write this book? What was happening where you said, you know what, I actually really want to dive into this and sort of, and sort of explore everything about conflict and high conflict? Yeah, you know, it was, I hate to be predictable, but it, it was the 2016 election where I was like, oh, 
there's a lot I do not understand about what is happening here. And as a journalist who writes for national news outlets, I felt like that's kind of like malpractice, right? Like I need to understand what the hell is going on here. And so I, you know, interviewed a lot of people. I talked to a lot of people. I read all the books and nothing still, it didn't quite add up until I met the people who study conflict as a system, particularly intractable, hard conflict all over the world. And they map it out like it's like a weather pattern and there's interlocking forces. And I was like, oh, yes, that is like we behave differently at this level of conflict, which I call high conflict, but there's other words for it. And the idea is the normal rules of engagement, the normal rules of journalism, malfunction in this in this climate, right? Once we're in this zone. So understanding that was the first kind of light switch, but then it was like, okay, what now? Like I'm a super impatient person and, and I got tired of just, you know, describing how polarized we are, reading about how bad it is, marinating in the sadness and despair. <laughs> and it was like, how do people get out of this? So trying to find examples of people and communities that were stuck in really ugly conflict and aren't anymore. And that was just my own sort of thinly veiled way to find, you know, hope <laughs> in our in our times. Hey, do you want to describe the difference between conflict and high conflict? And because you open the book basically by saying there's some kinds of conflict that is actually really good and healthy. And then there's high conflict, which is mostly destructive. Do you want to describe the differences? Sure. Yeah. So high conflict is the kind we're seeing a lot of right now. It uh, can really start about anything, but it distills into kind of an us versus them, good versus evil kind of feud. And our brain behaves differently. We start to make big mistakes. We miss things. And um, usually everything you do to get out of the conflict makes it worse. And the last piece of it that's very recognizable is that high conflict seems to have a life of its own. Like it just has its own momentum and it's hard to interrupt. So that is compared to most conflict or what I call good conflict, which is also can be stressful and heated, right? but it's going somewhere. Like there's a sense of movement, right? Whereas high conflict is the destination. Like you're stuck and you have the same conversations over and over and over. This can happen in a relationship or it can happen in a country, right? It's like at all levels. Whereas good conflict, you know, there's still questions get asked, things get learned, even as you continue to disagree. And so, you know, I went into this, I'm a pretty like skeptical person. I can be argumentative. I was very skeptical of this idea of like good, healthy conflict, you know? Um, and I've now seen it in front of my face so many times that I totally believe it is a real thing that all of us are capable of. And we just have to sort of design our world to cultivate it, to make it less hard, less countercultural than it is right now. So you go through kind of a bunch of case studies in the book, and there's some case studies that are maybe more predictable in terms of, you know, gang members in the South Side of Chicago or guerrilla fighters in Colombia. But the one that really resonated with me the most uh, was the Gary Friedman story. And he kind of reminded me of my dad. My dad's like a 75 year old uh, social worker, very sort of a peaceful guy, kind of gets along with people. He's a good mediator. Uh, and he's from New York City originally. And so there's all these similarities, you know, this East Coast Jewish guys. Is Friedman Jewish? I, sh I shouldn't have assumed that. Okay. And uh, anyway, and then you tell the story about how he gets sucked into conflict. Can you just walk our listeners through that particular story and how it 
conflict can uh, pervade anybody's life uh, if, if it gets a hold of them. I'm also just how you, how you found Gary Friedman. Do you know what I mean? Like that's an interesting part of process when you're researching and preparing your book. Yeah, though that's they those questions go together. So I was trying to learn from people who do conflict differently than journalists in the very beginning of this because I ended up writing a, a big project just on that before the book. And as part of that, you know, I was interviewing people like psychologists, lawyers, all kinds of people, diplomats. And I said, like, who's really good on conflict mediation? And everybody said this guy, Gary Friedman. So I reached out to him and he's like, right away, you knew he was like, just a really thoughtful, open, wise person. And uh, and then he said, we're having a training for a bunch of lawyers and therapists. Do you want to come in a couple of weeks? And for some reason, my editor approved this. I still don't know why. And I went and it was on, on in Mexico, like on the coast. It was like amazing and also really hard. You know, it was like a full week of meditation, which I had never done, never wanted to do. Um, and and like going into the emotions of conflict. And uh, and anyway, at some point, Gary, who's the leader of this group, says, you know, I actually ran for office in my little town not that long ago thinking I could fix politics in my little corner of the world. And it's not going well. <laughs> um, and I sort of put a pin in it and came back to him and visited him many times. And we, he, to his credit, like the fact that he is willing to share this story publicly is still kind of mind blowing because mm. um, you know, he is a, one of the world's leading experts on conflict. He understands it deeply. He has helped thousands of people deal with really ugly conflicts, everything from, you know, labor disputes to custody battles. He was on a team that helped the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra went on strike. They canceled 43 concerts. He helped deal, you know, help them reach an agreement. And he's written, you know, three books on the subject. And still, it, as he put it, it took him about an eighth of a second once he entered politics to lose his mind in high conflict. And, and he lost two years of his sort of peace of mind to the sort of you know, what seems like petty feuds to an outsider uh, before realizing what had happened and painstakingly extracting himself from the high conflict, which he and did it, do. And the stakes were comical too. It's like a tiny little community. <laughs> it's a volunteer position. <laughs> it's just like, this is what you're going to die over? Okay. <laughs> like, like, Yeah, right. That's why I love it because it's like yeah. a shoebox diorama of like political polarization. Like you just can't, you just can't as an outsider you can't get that excited about the justice and injustice, but the people in it, it feels very high stakes. And that's how high conflict mm. always operates. You know, like he kept comparing himself to Obama and his opponent to Trump, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I, the lesson for me was if Gary can get pulled into high conflict, you know, for anybody. sure I can, like mm. anybody can. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, that's sort of the theme is like, no matter the stakes, sort of like, our human inclination to have these sort of interactions is there regardless of, you know, whether it, like you said, it's Obama or it's Gary Friedman dealing with something local. Um, I'm fascinated. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned conflict entrepreneurs and I'm just for our listeners, I'm going to read the definition where it's like people who exploit high conflict um, for their own ends. Is this like, I guess my question would be I, I, when you encounter this sort of personality type or people who sort of like have this disposition, um, is there any way for them to sort of recognize it in themselves or is, or is, is the book and, and sort of a lot of the takeaways, you know, the idea of how do you interact with someone who is maybe a conflict entrepreneur as opposed to them seeing what they're doing in that situation? 
I think you're hitting on like a key tension that I have about the book, which is, you know, when you go out on a mission to stop like us versus them nonsense, you can easily start to create new us versus them nonsense. <laughs> so yeah. I can start otherizing conflict entrepreneurs. They're the bad guys. Yeah, <laughs> um, That's fun and easy to do. And I'm not saying I'm above it. Um, so my, for now, my, my attempt to deal with this is to recognize the, the conflict entrepreneur in me, right? Mm -hmm. In all of us. It's not like there's just two kinds of people, conflict entrepreneurs and non-conflict entrepreneurs. It's like we all have that capacity. As a journalist, I'm, I know I've been a conflict entrepreneur. Um, in many ways, it is easier to write a rant, right? Or a screed or to really go off on or do a sort of, you know, hit piece is what we call it, right? On someone or some institution um, that we think is corrupt or, and sometimes they are, sometimes it's more complicated, but uh, that is, is very there's a sort of um, energy that comes from that, right? Um, so what I, all I'm sort of the modest ask I'm making is like for myself to recognize it in myself, be aware of it in, in others, right? Um, what Gary says, because he's the one always urging me not to demonize <laughs> conflict entrepreneurs. And he's like, uh, look, if they're 90% conflict entrepreneurs, speak to the 10%. Mm. And interestingly, Curtis, the former gang leader in the book, is the same way. Like he will not give up on people, no matter mm. how much harm they've done. And <laughs> it, it, it's incredible. It's incredible. Mike, uh, so in pre preparing for this interview, Amanda, I kind of typed out some questions. And Mike, and I, by the way, I like to think of myself as a bit of a mediator and I get along with people pretty easily. But my question was in regards to conflict entrepreneurs, who are the worst defenders? Like I'm just stirring the pot. <laughs> But that's, I get, I have to say, like, I look, I have literally talked about doing a list, <laughs> like a ranking, a ranking. That's where my mind went. Too. Oh my God. Because we rank everything else. Like if you look at members of Congress, right? Personally, I am much less interested in which ones are centrist or left mm. or right. I mean, that's all fine, but we do all these rankings around that. How often do they vote with the president? How often mm. do they, I am much more interested in which ones are conflict entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. Like for me at this <laughs> moment in the conflict, that is really interesting. Is it everything? No, but it's one dimension. And uh, so, so I could easily go down, <laughs> go down that route. Um, and I'm not convinced there's not value there. This is like, you know, this is, this is a tricky terrain. Cause I do think we have to create uh, some peer pressure around this, mm -hmm. right? Like there's no disincentive right now for conflict entrepreneurial behavior. Like there's only incentives. Mm -hmm. So how do we shift the norms around it? Like what's cool and not cool? I don't know. I mean, maybe you guys have, maybe well, there are better ideas than just trying to shame people, which never works. <laughs> no. Well, one of my questions actually was, you know, um, when you think about people who have a platform in, in public life, especially, and this is this question is more about politics. Like, can we point to examples of really successful politicians or leaders that are not conflict prone at all? You know, like who who are the people that go, oh, this guy seems to live a delightful life. He sees the best in people or she, and they are very good at just bringing down the temperature in the room. And can we look to that person as an ideal kind of leader who who isn't stirring the pot? Is it, can you think of anybody, whether it's leaders in business or politics, that you go, oh, this person and did just a great job of just keeping everybody cool. Yeah. Well, like who's able to hold a lot of complexity in their head, mm -hmm. right? Like all at once, 
you know, to not kind of collapse into simplicity in their language or in the way they act. Um, and so you're right. This is a way to flip it. The best story. I think this is the way to do it. Right. Thank you guys for keeping me on the honest track. You need to write about like rank the people who are doing the good thing. Well, you know what? I think. I think Obama actually was probably pretty good, but the people around him made it a very much us versus them. I think if you were to ask Obama, and maybe I'm, I'm saying this because I'm an Obama fanboy, uh, you know, he sees complexity in people, I think, in a very deep way. I think people on his team, and this is why the Pod Save America guys kind of drive me crazy as much as, you know, like the John Favreau's, because it's made it into tribal warfare. And I'm just, and I just think you're, this is not actually helping. You're, you're getting everyone stoked who's on your team, but you're creating a lot of problems with people who see things a little differently than you. Um, yeah, that is, that is really interesting because it's like I often wonder, like this unanswerable question, like, is there anything Obama could have done? Um, you know, there's just so many, in addition to his team, just the reaction on the right, which is filled with many conflict entrepreneurs as well. Mm. And in the media, um, there was so much built in distrust that, you know, but you're right. He is someone who holds a lot of complexity, um, unusual levels in his head. Not, not that he's not human, like he definitely is, but even, you know, having interviewed him a couple of times, there is this real sense that, He's thinking through the question. I don't know if it's a trick. It might be a good trick. Like he really, <laughs> he pauses, he's thinking and he gives you like, there's a sort of, uh, which I have no idea how he does that. Cause once you've answered a question a million times, it's hard to do that. But, uh, but yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I also think, and this is showing obviously my own bias, but I do think that Biden is not naturally a conflict entrepreneur. Mm. Um, not that he can't, succumb to that impulse. But if you've seen like since he's been in office, he has not seemed to delight in Trump's humiliation mm. um, or impeachment. Right. There's not a kind of like reveling in that in that process, which is really smart strategically. Right. But also seems authentic. Um, and when he talks now, he's made mistakes. Like when he called, he called some of the governors who were um opening up COVID restrictions, he called them, he called it Neanderthal thinking. Mm, yeah. So that's literally dehumanizing. Like that is literally the definition of dehumanizing. So it's, you know, and he still gets perceived on the right as being very polarizing because his proposals are, are very left. Um, mm. But I don't think his language is particularly um, dehumanizing usually. As we, you know, I, you mentioned social media, the proliferation of social media, humiliation, the way that we sort of just like over the last sort of four years have sort of very visibly uh, confronted one another and have these sort of, um, you know, examples of high conflict. Do you think, is, is this like sort of like um, an example of like human nature and sort of our ability to change? Like I'm always, I'm fascinated like when I'm reading your book and I'm intellectualizing these things that are very sort of human reactions, you know, something you said resonated where you said, uh, you know, when you're in a high conflict, you sort of, um, you have a momentary sort of like um, satisfaction and maybe whatever the interaction is, but then long-term misery because you're not really getting the outcome you want. Like you said, the, the interaction, the, the high conflict is sort of the point of it. Um, do you think that it is something that like with knowledge, like we can grow out of it as a whole, or do you think that it's just a part of human nature and the way that we are drawn to it? Hmm. Um, I can speak for myself and then to the research for myself. I feel like becoming aware of it was actually quite 
transformative. Yeah. So that's not always the case. Like other things you can know about it and it doesn't change anything. Right. <laughs> so, um, but like, I now see that it's totally counterproductive if someone comes after me on social media to try to come back with some clever quip to embarrass them or call them. It's like totally counter mm -hmm. to my direct interests. So I think there's like profound ignorance and, and I include myself about how you persuade humans, especially in conflict. Mm. So like the tricks we think work are really counterproductive. So there's like a baseline level of skill that needs that we kind of kind of could all work on, right? Like we we all have this pulpit and we have no training um, in in what actually works. Like there was a study about how when people post uh, a political post on Facebook, they often will think that they are uh, um, showing people a fact, and it's like a public service. Like if you talk to people who do a lot of this, like they really feel like they're being super helpful. And it is often perceived by their followers as an opinion and maybe not so helpful, right? So the belief that we have communicated and persuaded is, in, is an incredibly uh, powerful delusion um, and especially true on, on social media. So how do we get better at it is, is the question. And I think some of it is just like... Give us three rules for Twitter that, uh, that if Twitter, <laughs> that, uh, Twitter would be a functional place. Never humiliate your adversaries. Okay. You're handing them a loaded weapon. Um, that's number one. I love that's that. That's number one. Uh, number two, you can actually listen on social media. Mm. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> so the other day I got into a little skirmish on Twitter about, I, I have strong feelings on schools reopening when, it, when the sign suggests it's safe. I used to cover education. I have a kid. I have all kinds of um, skin in the game. And I really feel like a lot of schools in, in the United States have failed uh, kids. And somebody I, I actually know on Twitter who I respect a lot, she kind of came back at, at this really pretty hard and was like, you know, I think this is reckless or whatever. And I, I tried to do the looping technique that's in the book, mm -hmm. but on Twitter, I'm like, I wonder if this will work. And so I said, first of all, I took it to DM because it's never good to do this publicly because yeah. then you're performing, right? And I said, uh, you know, I'm really, I really respect your opinion. I'm really curious if you could say more about this. Mm. You know, can we jump on the phone or, you know, we're talking about email if you don't have, I'm trying to take it. I keep trying to move it to a less inflammatory medium where there's more space. Mm -hmm. And so she moved it to email and she wrote this long thing, many of Many points of which I agree with, many of points I found really offensive. Like she was sort of assuming that anyone who argues for schools to reopen just wants to go on vacation and doesn't care about their kids, stuff like that. Right. Mm. So, like, that's that hurts, right? Because it's like, oh. And uh, so I wrote back and I first tried to prove to her that I had really listened, just like you would in a conversation. I'm like, it sounds like you feel like. People are being reckless and there needs to be like better safety standards in schools before you will trust. Da, 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 da. And all those things I said were what she said. Like, I'm not. That's the idea of looping, right? That, and, and just for our listeners, I find that to be really interesting. Where basically, if you're in, in a conflict with somebody, you say, how do you feel? And then they tell you and then you say it back to them. And then you kind of say, did I get that right? 
Uh, that's, I'm so uh, glad you put that third of... part in because I always used <laughs> yeah, to forget did... that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, did I get, so you're saying that you feel this, this, and this, did I miss anything? Did I get that right? And then sometimes they go, oh, you missed the most important part. The thing that actually means the most to me is this thing. And you go, okay, I'm going to repeat myself. It's this, 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 and this. Yeah. And that's the idea of looping back and forth. Yeah. And it, it sounds like, oh, like, you know, active listening, whatever. It sounds kind of squishy, which I hate because it's actually like, unbelievably powerful, like hardcore powerful. And like, there's a, there's good research on this, that once people feel heard, all these other cool things happen. Like they say less extreme things afterward, because they're not trying to be heard so badly. They've been heard and they uh, open up their mind to things they don't want to hear. So this is particularly important in a, in a conflict with a family member or a relationship, right? Like you're so busy staking your ground and fighting to be heard that you cannot hear anything until you feel heard. So it's like a game of chicken, right? Like who's mm-hmm. going to listen first? Uh, but it totally transforms the conversation. And then I could say, it sounds like, da, 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 is that right? And I said this in the email, same thing, right? Same protocol. And you know, then she wrote back, yeah, that's right, da, 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 except also this. I said, okay, it sounds like da 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 da. And now I feel like she feels heard mm. and I have really listened. So now I can be like, here's what I think. Like, I agree with you on this one point. Like, interestingly, we both seem very worked up, worried about the same exact kids. Like, interestingly, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're both feeling very righteous, worried about the same underprivileged kids, right? So let's talk about that and, like, you know, acknowledge the points of agreement and then make my case without, I mean, I'm not like, surrendering or hiding my real feelings. Right. And, and then she wrote back. So it went back and forth like this and it was good because it took me out of the trap of just Mm. kind of demonizing her. Like, Oh, she's yet another one of these, you know, these people. Right. Um, Mm. And vice versa, I think. Okay. Well, so what's the rule then? So basically take it off Twitter. Don't any, any arguments do it uh, offline or in a private on So you can listen on social. You can listen on social. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe the third, okay, so don't humiliate your opponents. Yeah. You can listen on social. Yeah. Three, try to do it on the phone instead okay. <laughs> or in person, <laughs> like right. ideally. So like people who study conflict in outer space among astronauts, like they have this huge problem where with deep space missions to Mars, which they want to do pretty soon, you can't have real-time conversations. Like mm-hmm. it takes, you have to send basically a text message, it takes 20 minutes to get from this from outer space to earth and another 20 to come back from ground control but believe me if they could have a real-time conversation they would because Mm -hmm. they know how much conflict arises out of that stilted text-only conversation so unless you're on a deep space mars mission really try to have any hard conversation (laughs) in real time at least on the phone, if not in person. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm interested, uh, just anecdotally, if you could share any stories of journalists uh, in your community who have read the book and and if, if you've changed their minds. Because cause one of the problems, because uh, I love consuming the news, I get the paper every day, I love being on Twitter, but there's a there's a difference between reporters and then opinion columnists, and they often get thrown in the same batch. And there seems to be a you know big political agenda, and it just and sometimes um, yeah, I, I, I think it heats up the conversation in, in a really negative way. Have you heard back from any of your colleagues as, and how they might want to reapproach some of their work or the way they have conversations? Yeah, yeah. So, but let me just ask: so, are you are you feeling like one 
fix would be to make it clearer to have reporters stay out of the opinion business? Yeah, I think so. Or just or identifying it is like, hey, I'm just I'm just a random I'm an opinion columnist. I, I'm here to kind of stir the pot or give my, and that's fine. That's like almost a form of entertainment. I, I but some but when you read the paper, I, re, I get the Globe and Mail, and, I, and I'm reading something. Oh, this is just a guy with an opinion. Uh, this isn't a reporting. Like you know, because when you're reporting, you, you are just reporting the facts, and it doesn't matter if you're a, a man or a female or a woman or six years old or 25. It doesn't matter. You're just sort of reporting the facts. So I find that to be a confusing thing to navigate as somebody who likes you, to consume the media. You and everyone else. So one of the <laughs> most one of the most unbelievable findings in the research is that the public keeps saying this over and over. Hey, we hate the opinion mix, you know, in in journalism. Like either get rid of the op-eds altogether or make it much clearer to your point. Mm. And and newsrooms are so resistant to change, just like other organizations, right? They're, they they keep delivering the product they want, not what their readers want. You know, it's very frustrating. It, there are there are exceptions. Like I want to note um, before I otherize all journalists, right? See how I'm doing that. Um, so there are huge exceptions, like really cool, innovative, like in Canada, in the U.S., all over. And they're mostly local, smaller publications that have really tried to listen to their audiences. Really cool ways to like systematically listen. Um, with you know platforms and different things and and try to like give their audiences what they need you know and and not just what we've always done mm. so i think you're totally right as to whether i've changed any journalists minds i mean i did this piece that came, the way this all started is i did this piece about like what journalists could learn from people who do conflict differently like a few years ago and it's really funny because it was the only time a nonprofit organization had asked me to write a story and I could do whatever I wanted, but they paid me to go off and spend months on this story, which is how I met Gary, the mediator. Mm. And it's a, an organization called the Solutions Journalism Network, which is super cool. Um, and they train newsrooms to help cover communities trying to solve problems as opposed to just the problems, right? And uh and so we, I went off and wrote this pretty long piece and I shopped it around all the places I usually write for. And every single one was like, yeah, this is interesting, but let's make it not about journalism. And, you know, like 90% shorter, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is kind of what I expected them to say. Journalists do not like to write about their craft, you mm -hmm. know, and there's different reasons for that. But so we kind of did this three times to three major national outlets. And at that point, I was like, okay, guys, I'm done. <laughs> like, you can do what you want with this, but I'm not pitching it anywhere else. So they just put it up on Medium just, you know, for free. And this thing just took off. There's like 100,000 people right in the first, you know, and I have yet, I have never written anything that has had a longer half-life. I mean, I've written cover stories for The Atlantic and Time Magazine. All those vanish within a few weeks, right? But this still to this day has this weird resonance and it's not it's not clear why except that it, it details the ways in which you can tell stories in conflict that don't make the conflict worse what's right? the what's the column what's the, uh, the piece it's column? called complicating the narratives okay anyway i started down this path to say that actually did get the attention of a lot of journalists. And mm. we've now, Solutions Journalism, to their credit, picked up the, you know, I'm the kind of person, I, I write the story, I'm like, okay, my work here is done. You know? <laughs> and then like, I move on to the next story. I don't have enough vision. Whereas Solutions Journalism 
created a whole training around this. And there's an amazing journalist there named Alenbia Dudihofer who has trained hundreds of journalists in like the looping technique that we talked about and other ways that you can be heard even in a really polarized climate. And I, I actually think those journalists were all craving something. It's not like it changed their mind. It's like they wanted to do something differently and they just needed someone to help them figure out what, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated as we sort of uh, wrap up. I'm interested, you know, whenever you have, you know, real uh, live living subjects in a book after a book is published and it comes out, uh, when, if the author hears back from them, like, have you heard from Caleb, for instance, you know what I mean? Like, have they read, the, have they read the book? What are their thoughts? What's, what are some, uh, some of the, the things you've heard back from the people that appear in it? Oh, what a great question. No one's asked me this. And it's like so much fun for me to talk about. Cause it's like new, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, these people are like my heroes, right? Like they have not only gotten into really ugly conflict, but they've gotten out and they've told about it. Like they've talked about it, which is like very brave. And so Caleb Follett is a um, very conservative uh, Trump supporter, Michigan corrections officer. He works in the prison system there. And uh, he's in the book because he did this like homestay exchange with very liberal Jewish New Yorkers. Long story, but it's a great story. Amazing chapter. So good. And so Caleb you know, as I've gotten older, I, I'm much more open about sharing stuff before it comes out, which again, you're not supposed to do as a journalist, but uh, <laughs> this is my book. I do what I want. So I sent, <laughs> I sent the chapters to everybody that, you know, all the major characters for them to read and, and give me feedback. And, uh, and I find when you do that, it, it just makes it better. Like people never mm. are like, take me out of this book, you know? <laughs> so Caleb, not only was, he was so good and so helpful and so important for my own blind spots because he's super conservative and I'm more liberal, that he offered to read the whole book. Now, this guy works double shift at this prison. He has three little kids. He has no time. And I sent him this book. He read the whole thing. He took notes. We had a four-hour phone call like going over because there were all these things I was saying that you would make him laugh because he knew me. But he's like, you know, you're going to piss off like half the country. Do you mean to piss off? And like, sometimes I meant what I said, but like at least 80% of the time, I did not mean to piss off half the country and I do not want to, like it's against my interest. So he could help me see it because he speaks conservative. Like we're speaking different dialects at this point, Mm -hmm. right? It's sadly. So, so yeah, he and I, he just texted me. He's constantly sending me YouTube clips I should watch and like Joe Rogan's I might've missed and you know, all these, (laughs) it's great because, you know, I have him. I, it's nice to have someone curate YouTube for you. Um, and so that's what Caleb does. You're so funny, Amanda. We we were having a conversation on, on the podcast a few weeks ago, but like who are figures in American life that could help bridge the gap? Like who who could be me- like messengers uh, of of ideas that need to get out there? And I, I don't listen to Rogan, but I think Rogan, I've seen him do stand-up comedy. I know, he, I know that his demographic of listeners. And I said, oh, you know, he might be a guy that could relay the message in a positive way because he seemed, he hangs out with enlightened people, et cetera, et cetera. And then, uh, of course, he made a lot of news last week for the, the kind of foolish thing that he said about vaccines. But then, and then I got tweeted at saying, whoa, what do you think of your boy Rogan now? Because somebody had listened to the pod. And I was just like, and, and, I, and, I, and maybe we finished with this one excerpt that um, I wish... I, I should just have that as like my pin tweet, 
but uh, it's page 247. No one ever in history has changed their mind because some reporter they don't know called them out. That's not how humans work. Shame rarely has the desired effect, even with people we know. It never works outside of your own tribe, and reporters are almost always on the outside. Listening doesn't mean agreeing. It doesn't mean legitimizing or amplifying what other people say. I and anyway, I just like love that uh, so much, and I just wish there's a little bit more of that. And I think your whole book uh, speaks. to I that. I agree, and I think you're right about Joe Rogan. For the record, thank you. <laughs> Bring it. Let's see. Take me on. Let's do it. We'll yeah. do a lot of looping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. This is uh, really a, a treat to be able to talk to you like this. You too, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Okay, thank you so much uh, to Amanda Ripley for joining us. Gang, it is time for Shane's Surprise. Shane, what's up? Okay, so we talked about a lot of uh, me being betrayed in the uh, <laughs> right before this interview. <laughs> now this is a time I betrayed someone, and this relationship is still not been mended. So I decided mm, to beam wow. in the person who I betrayed, and they're oh, going to tell whoa. the story. Let's see if this person can figure it out how to come in. I try to time these things you know, correctly. We're having a guest today. Yeah. Dang. This is exciting. Okay. Okay. Hey, now Max this won't know so me, sad. but uh, what's up, Mike? How's it going, man? Let's see. Max, do you know who this guy is? Mm, I don't know if I do. It says Mackenzie on the screen. Hi, Mackenzie. Good to meet yeah. you. <laughs> this, this is Todd Leggett. Uh, Oh shit! Okay, of course. Well, of course. I, okay, good to see you, Todd. We might have met in passing. You're a legend you in know Hamilton. Funny story about you is I. So I actually met you one time. Oh god! And um, it was it was in Toronto after a Leaf game. I went out with Bram to meet up with Shane and some of the Champagne Boys, and <laughs> we. I'm pretty sure we were both pretty drunk. And I walked into you in a bar. You were coming through the dance floor. I'm like. Oh man, that's Max from the Arkells. I go, that's crazy. So I, I stop you dead in your track and you look at me like a deer in headlights and you go, Hey, and I go, man, I'm Bram's brother. And at the time I thought you knew my brother Bram, but evidently you didn't. In hindsight, <laughs> you looked at me like I had two heads on. You just gave me a thumbs up and basically slowly backed away from me. And that was, that was our only meeting. So we've never met since. Okay. Well, I, I, uh, it's, so oh, I'm yeah. that guy essentially. It's well, it's good to uh, good to talk to you. Yeah, finally. you remember yeah. that interaction now, don't you? Max? Of course, so you of course. That of course refresher. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But Todd, take it take right. it away. We're talking about betrayals. Is the theme of this episode? Well, be betrayals or grudge. So it's funny. So I know Shane's always looking for a little bit of content. So <laughs> I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of stories. A lot of good uh, stories in that from growing up in the past. Got a lot of good friends in that. So I was thinking. I've got a good one that a guy we grew up with and I thought this would be perfect to come on the show. But then I put my producer hat on and I thought, <laughs> what do the fans want to see? You know, the fans don't want to be here about some guy from McNabb that, you know, is flipping fries. They want to know about someone more important. So I have the delight of bringing you a good story today about Shane that I would say is pretty much a betrayal and to a grudge to this day in my eyes. Oh, Ooh, me too. Wow. Okay. Do share. Okay. So here, so I'll preface the story a little bit. So about five years ago, um, my wife, she's pregnant and I'm, you know, as any dad with your first kid coming, you're think, 
oh, you know, those, the glory years are kind of coming to an end. You know, I'm going to try and make the most out of these times to have left the party and have fun. So we go down to Toronto one night and uh, her cousin's a chef at this restaurant. We're having a beautiful dinner and unlimited drinks, you know, basically having a really good time. So four or five hours in, I'm going, you know what? I'm never in Toronto, but I'm going to reach out to a couple of friends down here because I don't get the opportunity to come down here very often. I'm going to make the most of it. So finally reach out to a couple of guys and Shane's one of them that I'm able to get in touch with. And he says, Hey man, Alex and I got this crazy suite for the night. <laughs> I've heard this story before. <laughs> yeah, this is a legendary story. We got this crazy suite and, uh, you know, it's just Alex and I, why don't you come and we'll, you know, have some drinks. We got like our own pool table. It's crazy, man. You wouldn't believe it. So I'm going, <laughs> man, that sounds like, you know, a, a, for a first time father with a baby coming in a couple months, you're like nights like this. You just can't like go to waste. I'm taking advantage of it. So, you know, say goodbye to my old lady. She gets in the car with her parents. They take off back to Hamilton, right? <laughs> so now I'm, I'm, I'm feeling great. I feel like I'm 20 years old again, you know, got a little, you know, pep in my step and I, I have no idea where I'm meeting Shane in Toronto, but he sends me the address of the swanky hotel. Get out front, and it's, I mean, it's five stars all the way, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting out front, and I'm like, okay, Shane should be down any minute to let me in. And I just assume they're going to be coming down, you know, through the lobby. But he comes up from, like, the side street. And I'm like, that's really unusual if you had this ball and suite. So long story short, don't think much of it. We go inside this beautiful lobby, and uh, Alex and I are kind of shooting the breeze a little bit easy to do right she's a great girl and i see shane he kind of makes his way over to like the front desk like the bellhop guy and i'm going all right i don't know maybe there's something going on but doesn't matter i talked to alex for five six minutes finally uh shane gives the okay all right we're headed up beautiful get in the elevator ride right we're going up like it's i mean it's got to be 40 floors up like it's long <laughs> it felt like honestly the cn tower ride how high we were going <laughs> so we get up there, right? And Shane walks us down the hallway, like end of the hallway. There's this crazy, you can tell it's the best suite in the house for sure. And I'm thinking, man, like, I know he's a funny guy, but I didn't know much music was playing this kind of dope, quite honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so he opens the door and it literally opens up like the Home Alone suite. I mean, there is five or six distinct hotel room sizes that I can see. Like straight ahead, there's a dining room bigger than any hotel I've stayed at to date to the right, huge kitchen, uh, family room. Like it's massive. I mean, I can only imagine it's probably max something that like you're used to when you're, when you're touring or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's something I'm definitely not used to. So we go inside and it's like, there's unlimited booze and, and we start playing pool and like, I'm like, man, this is crazy. And in my head, I'm still thinking like, it's a little strange that Shane and Alex have this room all to themselves, but I don't think much of it. I said, man, he's living the big life now down in the big smoke and he's, he's making big money. Right. So I'm thinking, man, this is, you know, good for him. You know, he's come a long way from snatch TV. I'm thinking. So anyways, we're playing pool and stuff like this drinking. I think I got DMX playing in the background. You did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and finally Shane at about maybe like 11 or 1130 is like, ah, I think we're going to be taking off soon. And I looked at him. I'm like, 
what are you talking about, man? You like, I don't know what this week costs, but I'm sure it's north of 1500 to two grand a night. And he's like, Oh, it's okay. Like he plays it off. Like, Oh, we get them all the time. Like, yeah, you don't have to work. Like, you know, I'm thinking maybe it's Moses Amner suite or something like that. I have no idea. <laughs> right. But he's like, oh, he's playing it off. Like, ah, there's always next time, you know, something like this. But for me, I'm thinking there's no next time. Like I'm never going to be in a suite like this again. So I'm like, well, man, you know, I hate that you're leaving. But at the same time, like I'm taking advantage of this. So I kind of pulled out a hundred bucks out of my pocket. I don't know what that would have done for the actual room cost, but <laughs> I basically like, like an old grandma shoved it in his pants. Right. And he, he, he was like, okay, yeah, I can, I can live with that. Like, thanks for a hundred bucks. Right. So now I'm thinking, okay, like I I've paid some sort of fee for this room. Like he doesn't seem concerned. So I'm thinking great, you know? So I'm sitting there playing pool, drinking and all this stuff by myself. I'm trying to get anyone I've ever met to come down and hang out with me because I'm thinking <laughs> this is the coolest thing ever, right? So sure enough, after like an hour, that kind of wears off and I'm sitting there basically watching highlights on the couch in my underwear. <laughs> so now I'm thinking like, okay, like it was still a fun night, you know, something cool. End up passing out right on the couch. There's like literally two or three fan rooms, far left fan room. You almost can't even see it from the kitchen area. So next thing I know, right, I'm sitting there and it's like 6.15, 6.30 in the morning. Now this is summer. So the sun is just beating through these windows, right? And I'm like basically getting a tan. At this point now, I have no idea what happened. I wake up completely buck naked on this couch, right? And uh, no socks, no underwear, nothing. And as far as I can tell, I'm the only one in there. So I'm like, ah, you know, it's 6.30. I didn't really want to get up yet. So I go, you know what, I'm going to go hydrate, like bury, you know, a couple Gatorades or whatever, go take a leak. And then I'm going to find a bedroom. Cause I said for a hundred bucks a night, I deserve a room with some curtains. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. so anyways, go to the bathroom, this and that start walking around and say, I never saw a bedroom last night, but there's gotta be one. So I walk over to the first door. I see, open it up start walking in. It's nice. Blinds are shut. And I'm thinking, perfect. All I can see kind of is the outline of a bed. So I walk in and I get closer and closer. And all of a sudden I see, I just see like basically a naked man and I see hair everywhere. Like this is a hairy individual. Right. And I'm like, for a second here, I'm thinking, what did I do last night? Right. I'm thinking, oh man, did, did I get something put in my drink? Like what happened? Right. All I see is a naked man in the room that I thought I was in solo with. I'm thinking like, this isn't good. And thank God I see like, after like my eyes kind of came to, I could see like a female line beside this person. So I'm going, okay, good. At least I didn't end up in bed with that man at any point in the night, walk my way back out of the room. And then I'm thinking like, this is crazy. Like I just walked into someone else's room. I'm thinking, you know, when you're a kid in like a tournament and you've got kind of two doors to a room. I think I've just somehow basically went into another person's complete separate suite. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> uh, so I, I come back and I shut the door. I'm thinking, oh, okay. Like that can't be my suite. And then I thought about it sitting there. I'm, I'm sitting there naked on the couch, right? Sun's coming through, beat me. It's like 6.20 in the morning, 6.30. And I'm going, well, Todd, that doesn't make any sense. Like there was only one door. Like the second door was never there. And I'm going, Oh my God. And then I instantly in my head, it was like a Newman moment. I go Cunningham like this because I knew I was set up. I didn't know how, but I knew I was set up somehow. So I'm like, 
either he knows this guy or he has no idea who this guy is, but I'm in someone's room who doesn't know I'm here. And the way the layout and everything was so big with the, the hotel, like I was literally in the left West wing. No one would have ever seen me. So now I'm panicking. I'm like, I got to get out of here. So I'm frantically looking around for my gitch, my socks, can't find anything. I finally find my jeans, like tight, you know, nice jeans, shirt, basically haul over to the door. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. Sneak outside, close the door very quietly. I'm thinking, okay, crisis averted. Go to use the elevator. Well, guess what? It's one of these fancy places. You're not getting anywhere without a room key in the elevator. So now I'm standing in the elevator. I'm worried Buddy might have seen me. He's coming out of his suite any second. And elevator's not moving. So now I'm like, okay, now I'm sitting there 6.30 in the morning, unbelievably hungover, probably still drunk. And now I've got to make the decision. Do I go down this fire escape or not? And I'm going, if it works, great. You know, crisis averted. But if the alarm goes off, I'm in trouble. So finally, I build up my confidence, push it slightly, doesn't go. And I haul ass down like 35 flights. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to run 35 flights with no underwear on and a tight pair of jeans, <laughs> but it is not a comfortable <laughs> feel. Like I was, it was not nice. So finally, at the end, the whole way down, I'm thinking that fucking Cunningham, I'm going to kill him. Sorry, I don't know if you're no, not you sure. can that swear. Yeah, Cunningham. Yeah. That freaking Cunningham, the whole way down, I'm going I'm to kill him. Finally, get outside, get in an Uber at like 6.30. And the whole way home, I'm just thinking like, what an ass. That had to have been a setup. He must not even have known the people. And uh, to cap it all off, I'm coming on the 403 by like York Boulevard. And I end up tossing my cookies like pretty much at the top of Coots Paradise. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. That was That's the end of the story. But I've always had a grudge on him since this day because I swear he messes with me sometimes just for content. And I was like... I listened to every podcast after that for like three weeks straight, thinking he was going to come on and make a fool of me. And I've never really mentioned it to anybody. Shane and I are the only ones that ever talked about that. But so I want to know, Shane, what is what were the circumstances? Well, so um, many unanswered questions okay, for our yeah, listeners. So first of all, I yes, I wanted that cool for Todd. I wanted to pretend I was staying in this suite, and I did act like we rented it, Alex and I, and like we were ballers because Todd I, is somebody I always wanted wanted to impress from high school. However, when we left. You asked if you could stay for a few hours and shoot some pool and then leave. You never said you were going to spend the entire <laughs> night at the suite I rented. So that was extra. You kind of betrayed me if what I had said was the original truth. <laughs> so, so, And then the $100 bill, I tried not to accept the $100 bill, but you were so inebriated and you shoved it down my pants. Like the hundred, you scrunched up and you shoved it down my pants and you wouldn't say, take no for an answer. So eventually we we're like, oh, geez, Todd's like this big deal real estate agent. He's doing very well. A hundred dollars to him is nothing. Kid can party. Yeah. But so Todd, <laughs> now that we've kind of cleared the air, can you follow me again on Instagram? Yes, I can. Okay. It's been a long time coming. It's been a long time coming. But Wait, 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 wait. Whose place was it? Who was the man? I mean, I know the answer to this, but our listeners must know. Or are we just going to leave them in the dark? So all I heard from Shane in like, we were texting back and forth later on. All I heard it was. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. So to wrap this up, Todd, will you follow Shane on Instagram again? Absolutely. Yep. yep. Your wife He's unfollowed me too. I just so. had to get that off my chest. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good to, good to talk to you uh, at this length, Todd. We'll, we'll yeah, do nice it again. Yeah. All right. All right. Great See seeing you, Todd. Bye. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Later, boys.